All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 42. Title to our message today is Israel's Exodus and the Plundering of Egypt. Please remember as you're turning there that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, before we read this here, recall last time we saw the final plague, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. Every house in Egypt had mourning because every house in Egypt was affected by at least one death. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and commanded them to leave immediately with him and all of Israel, all their herds, all their flocks, all their children. So picking up from there, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in the revelation of your Son, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we could see the hope, the great hope, the invincible hope that you have called us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. In the first 12 chapters of Exodus, we've seen the most amazing miracles in the ancient world. Plague after plague, Nile turning into blood, frogs, gnats, And yet Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go. And so Yahweh 
poured out this last plague, the 10th plague. And what is simply remarkable, in my view, is that Pharaoh didn't release Israel sooner. I mean, even his own advisors at one point said, don't you know that Egypt is ruined? Plague after plague after plague ruined Egypt. But it wasn't until this last plague, the Passover lamb shed its blood, the firstborn was dead, that was the very moment when Israel was redeemed. And this, loved ones, was by design. It was by design to display the gospel of Christ. It teaches us that no power on earth could ever overcome sin and Satan and death, no amount of plagues, no amount of good works, no amount of heroic sacrifice, no amount of money, no amount of penance. It's what we sing in that song, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands could fulfill Thy law's demands, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Israel was freed precisely at this moment to display that we are not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Israel was freed from Pharaoh's slavery when the Passover lamb was slain. And so we are freed from Satan's tyranny when the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, has washed us and cleansed us from all of our sin. Now this should remind us that as we read the Old Testament, that we're not reading mere history. The Old Testament is history. It's true history. It's the most reliable guide to history on the planet. But the Old Testament is also filled with types and shadows of spiritual things that foreshadow what would be accomplished by Christ. Jesus himself told us to read the Old Testament like this. In John 5, 46, he was talking about Moses. He said, Moses wrote of me. And Paul, in his writings, he, he said that what happened to Israel, and specifically in the Exodus, are types and shadows for us, First uh, Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. So we need to keep that in mind because as we are looking at Israel departing from Egypt this morning and plundering the Egyptians, we must recognize two things. Number one, this is real history. This really happened. And number two, this is a type of our redemption. If we fail to read Exodus as both history and typology, a prophecy in picture form, then we're going to fail to understand the true meaning of the text. So with that being said, here is our outline this morning. First, we're going to see the spiritual plundering of Egypt, and then secondly, the historical plundering of Egypt, and then thirdly, the eternal plundering of Egypt. So let's look first of all at the spiritual plundering of Egypt. Look with me, if you will, at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. There's different ways that we can be urgent, right? We have a deadline at 
five o'clock and between now and five o'clock, I got to get these things done. Or there's a different type of urgency where it doesn't matter what you're in the middle of, you're doing it right now. That's this type of urgency. The, is, the, the Egyptians were burying their dead at the same time they were telling the Israelites to get out. In Numbers 33, 4, it says, On the day after Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. So get that picture in your mind. As father and mother or siblings were digging holes for their dead, they were pushing Israel out of the land. And we see this same haste in verse 34 on Israel's side. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Now, if you remember from chapter 12, same chapter we're in, verses 14 through 20, we had all these regulations of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And at Passover, they were not to have any leaven in their house. It seems here that they were intending on adding leaven to their bread. So I conclude two things. Either they weren't yet given the instructions or they, those instructions were for the future observances. The point, though, is that these Egyptians were so urgent for Israel to leave that in the middle of preparing their food, they had bowls full of dough, and they wrapped them up in a blanket, put it on their shoulders, and left. It was, it was the first instance of fast food in history. And we see this same urgency uh, repeated in, in verse 39. But they did do something before they left. Uh, Look with me at verses uh, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, They plundered the Egyptians. This is one of those moments where you just have to pause and meditate on what's being said. This is absolutely incredible. Why would a dragon state, a people that were full of murderers, their their masters, hand all of their wealth over to their slaves? I mean, that would be like George Soros bankrolling every Christian church in America. Can you imagine that? What would explain this choice here? Well, God is Lord and master over every human heart. That's what the text says. Uh, The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. The God who said, let there be light, says to every human heart, do this or do that. Just as God was master of Pharaoh's heart, so he is over the heart of every human being. And so the Egyptians, they bankrolled Israel here. But this wasn't just like a a couple pair of earrings and some socks that they gave them. Later in Exodus 38, we're going to see 38, 24 through 25, Israel gives gold and silver for the contribution of the tabernacle. And it tells us specifically how much they gave. They gave 
2,200 pounds, that's a metric ton of gold, and 7,500 pounds of silver, according to the, my calculations. Now, in today's money, that would be over $50 million. And that was merely what they contributed. That's not all that they had. Um, in Exodus 36.6, the people were told to stop bringing gold and silver because they already had more than what they needed. And so in, they, they absolutely plundered Egypt, fulfilling what God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 14, they would come out with great possessions. Now, there are multiple reasons for this plunder, and we're going to see that as Exodus proceeds, but what we ought to see here is that this event, this plundering, sets a pattern for all of redemptive history. Uh, Proverbs 13, 22 says, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Job 27, 16 and 17, though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. Or Ecclesiastes 2, 26, to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. The wicked only temporarily hold on to wealth and they are particularly storing it up for God's people. It's the meek who will inherit the earth and all of its plunder, Matthew 5.5. 5. So then that brings us then to our first principle, which is this, that being delivered by Christ from Satan's kingdom results in unspeakable plunder. Being delivered by Christ from Satan's kingdom results in unspeakable plunder. The Hebrews did not leave Egypt in poverty. And dear congregation, when Christ delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, he did not leave you in poverty. He gave you inconceivable wealth. In fact, God specifically describes our salvation as adorning us with treasures. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 54, 11 and 12. Here God is describing what salvation is like in prophetic imagery. Isaiah 54, 11 through 12, we read this. O afflicted one, Storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Now, what do these treasures represent here? Well, we don't have to guess because the next two verses tell us. Look at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Do you see it? 
that these treasures represent all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. This is how Paul opens up the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Consider just, just three spiritual blessings that Christ plundered for us when he delivered us from spiritual, uh, spiritual Egypt. And this is the smallest sampling. So first of all, a pure conscience. I was sitting underneath um, a gazebo in the backyard the other day, and I was just enjoying the sun and the blue sky, and I remember my life was not always like that. While in spiritual Egypt, we had a defiled conscience. Titus 1, 5 says, To the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Loved ones, when I was in the prodigal country, running from God, I could not turn the music up loud enough. I could not drink enough. I could not do enough drugs to silence the accusations that were against me. I had no peace. Do you remember what that was like? I'm not saying your experience is, is exactly the same as mine. What I'm saying is that the unbeliever has a conscience that is defiled by sin. But what did Christ do for you? When he delivered you from spiritual Egypt, he, he gave you a gem that's more precious than gold. He gave you a clean conscience. Hebrews 9, 14, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All human beings feel guilty because all human beings are guilty. And no amount of money and no amount of penance or good works can erase that guilt. But Christ, Christ plundered a pure conscience for you, dear believer, when he rescued you from spiritual Egypt. Second spiritual blessing is eternal life. While in spiritual Egypt, we were enslaved to the fear of death. Just like I said that every human being feels guilty, without exception, every human being, without exception, is afraid of death. Every natural human being. Hebrews 2.15 says that all mankind, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong death. Slavery. What is the unbeliever afraid of? Why is he afraid of death? I mean, besides not existing like in the present state, he's afraid of the judgment of God. His conscience tells him that he's guilty before God. He knows that he's going to face God, and therefore he's afraid of death. How can a sinner stand before a holy God? But because Christ has freed us, from spiritual Egypt, we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can mock death as believers. Christians can mock the greatest fear 
that we were born with. We've been given the gem of eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is the plunder you were given when Christ rescued you from spiritual Egypt. Third spiritual blessing is the fullness of joy. I mentioned while I was in the the prodigal country that I couldn't turn the music up loud enough, drink loud enough, do enough drugs to pacify my conscience. But the other thing is, is that no matter what I did, I could never find joy. Slaves to sin can never be happy. When was the last time you found yourself going on a sin binge? And you're like, man, I'm just so full of joy right now. It never happens. Never. Never happens. The Rolling Stones song is the anthem of every single believer. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no... None. You can't get any. No matter how hard we tried to find joy in spiritual Egypt, we could find none. God has put eternity in the hearts of man, and only God can fill that void. But when Christ snatched us out of Egypt, what did he do? He brought us to exactly what we needed. He brought us to God himself, to God. Salvation is not just simply getting these gifts abstractly separated from God. It's getting God. 2 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Okay, forgiveness. The righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, I have covering. That he might bring us to God. That's what we need. That's where all the joy is. Psalm 16.11, In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the gold and the silver. But you might say, okay, Pastor Josh, but I I still, I still feel the accusations of Satan. I still feel guilty, even though I know I'm a Christian. Well, loved one, consider what else was plundered for you. It wasn't just the gold and silver. Look at the end of verse 35. They were given gold, they were given silver. What else were they given? They were given new clothing. The Hebrews left Egypt with new clothing. When you left spiritual Egypt, you were given new clothing. You were given the very righteous robes of Jesus Christ. They are, those robes are more real than the clothes that you're wearing on your back right now. Psalm uh, Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Dear believer, the, the moment that you first believed, the most amazing thing happened to you, the righteousness of Christ was imputed. It was credited to your account. God does not look at your old sinful clothing. He looks at the robes of his own son that he has put upon you. You are covered. 
with Christ's righteousness. So if that old serpent accuses you of your old clothes, you can just simply say, yes, my old clothes were stained with sin, and for that I deserve hell. But now I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and since God has accepted him, I know that he will accept me. All these spiritual blessings, a pure conscience, eternal life, fullness of joy, imputed righteousness, and much more are the gold and silver and clothing that was plundered by Christ for us when we left Egypt. When you left Egypt, you lost nothing and you gained an inestimable treasure. But to those who are outside of Christ, there is no plunder. To those who are outside of Christ, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no eternal life, there's no righteousness. Those left behind in Egypt will not only have all of their wealth taken from them at death, but more terrifyingly, God will require from them at death an accounting of their soul. There's only one hope, Christ. So friend, if that is you this morning, if you're still in spiritual Egypt, then turn to Jesus in faith. The scripture says there is no name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So that's our first point. When Christ delivered us from Satan's kingdom, he gave us unspeakable plunder. Let's look at our second point, the historical plundering of Egypt. And I, I want to engage in a little bit of biblical theology now. So let's look at the passage as a whole. These 10 verses that we're looking at this morning had century-long effects. These 10 verses. The Exodus shaped the entire ancient world. Uh, from the Exodus until the coming of Christ, which is approximately 1,500 years, this event gave birth to everything good that was in the ancient world. From this event, Israel became a nation. The law was given at Mount Sinai. The tabernacle was established. Worship. The whole Old Testament canon was written. The kingdom was established. The prophets prophesied. The seed of the woman was protected from the seed of the serpent until the fullness of time would come. In other words, the most important event in the ancient world between 1500 BC and the coming of Christ was this event, the Exodus. And that's why you see it everywhere in the Old Testament if you open up your eyes. Not only is it prophesy about in Genesis 15, but you will be pressed to find a book where you don't hear the same refrain over and over and over again. Listen to a sampling. Leviticus 11.45, for I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Numbers 15.41, Deuteronomy 5.15. Joshua 24, 17, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. Judges 2, 1, 1 Samuel 8, 8, 2 Samuel 7, 23, 
First Kings 8, 51, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Psalm 81, 10, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Daniel 9, 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. It's everywhere. The most important historical event in the ancient world was the Exodus. It shaped human destiny. But woven throughout the Old Testament canon are whispers of a second exodus. In fact, Isaiah 11, 11 says, In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And this second exodus begins in Matthew's gospel. So please turn with me to Matthew 2.15. Now, this is where Joseph took Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 15, and we read this. They remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Wow. I mean, you can't read the birth account again the same if you know this history. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, Christ is coming out of Egypt. Are there any other similarities? Well, yes. There's the plundering. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Now, this is where Jesus was casting out demons. The Pharisees accused him of doing it by the power of Beelzebub, And he responds that if, well, if Satan casts out his own, then he tears down his own kingdom. But then he says this in Matthew 12, 28 through 29. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Do you see? The Exodus was a faint whisper of Jesus Christ coming into the world to plunder Satan's house. And this second exodus, this plundering of Satan's house, it didn't end when Jesus ascended into heaven, like everything's just going back to normal now. It continues to this day. Uh, And that brings us then to our second principle. Christ is still defeating enemies and plundering Satan's kingdom down to this day. Christ is still defeating enemies and plundering Satan's kingdom down to this day. The second exodus is still taking place. Children, um, boys and girls, sometimes an effect lasts just a short amount of time, and sometimes an effect lasts a long time. 
So imagine if I take some water, put it in an ice cube tray and freeze it. So the effect is the freezing of the ice cube. How long will that effect last if I take that ice cube and put it in a glass of water? A few minutes maybe? What about if I mow my lawn? So the effect is my lawn is mowed. How long does that effect last? <laughs> I guess if you put the super feed on it, right? Matt, a little bit longer than an ice cube, but, but not long enough, right? Now consider, if the first exodus, if the effects of the first exodus lasted 1,500 years, how long would the true and better exodus of the gospel of Christ last? Until the end of this age. Just as the first exodus shaped the ancient world, so the second exodus, the cross and blessed resurrection of Christ is shaping the world today. This is the movement of history. I have a fascinating book on my shelf. We play games with it at home. Called The Day and the Hour. Christianity's perennial fascination with predicting the end of the world. And it chronicles, it's a very helpful book, it chronicles century by century uh, Christians' attempt to pin the tail on the Antichrist or, or guess the identity of Gog and Magog. I know right now it's big like it's China and Russia, right? You guys got nothing. It was Turkey before. <laughs> or predicting that this next war, this next war will be the end of the world. Listen to this quote. Wars continue frequently to prevail. Death and famine accumulate anxiety. Health is shattered by raging diseases. The human race is wasted by the desolation of pestilence. Know that this was foretold, that evils should be multiplied in the last times. It was predicted by the voice of the Lord and by the testimony of the apostles that now that the world is failing... And the Antichrist is drawing near. Everything good shall fail, but evil and adverse things shall prosper, end quote. Now, guess when that was written? 250 AD by Cyprian of Carthage. And just in case you didn't know, look at the calendar this morning. It's 2023. Dear friends, how did the first exodus end? In victory, in plundering. How will the second exodus end? Are we to suppose that Satan, the spiritual pharaoh of our age, will get the upper hand? Did he somehow escape the binding of Christ? Is not Christ plundering his house still? What is the promise of Scripture? 1 Corinthians 15.25 says that he must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. Jesus is still plundering. The, the second exodus will end like the first. This doesn't mean that there are not hard times ahead. We, we may have to make bricks without straw. Our labors may get more difficult. But Christ will plunder this world. He will not fail. That's our second point. That Christ is still defeating enemies and plundering Satan's kingdom down to this day. So let's look at our third point, which is the eternal plundering of Egypt. Now let's turn back to our text in Exodus chapter 12. 
Look with me, if you will, at verse 37. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Now, this number is actually rounded down. Um, in Exodus 38:26, the number is 603,550. Um, but, but this only counts those who are men who are 20 years old and upward. Many commentators put this number at two and a half million once you add uh, women and children. But there was also the livestock, uh, which would have been a massive collection in and of itself. And then look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude on top of the 2.5. Now, there are, are two interpretations of this mixed multitude. Number one, this mixed multitude is full of enemies, so they're the ones who stirred up Israel to rebel against God in the wilderness. That's one interpretation. Number two, this mixed multitude typifies the Lord's redemption of both Jews and Gentiles. The promise to Abraham and his offspring was that all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I think that there's a little bit of truth in, in both of those interpretations because Jews and Gentiles are both in rebellion against the Lord and he saves both by grace through faith. Now the point is, is that when you add up all these Gentiles and Jews and animals, you get such an incredible number that one author says, quote, when they traveled, they must have formed a column more than 10 miles long. I mean, this... This is almost double the population of Idaho. And unbelieving historians look at this data and they scoff and they say, this is impossible. They did the math. Uh, that, this would mean that several million creatures left Egypt. They said that this group would have had to form one of the largest populations of uh, anywhere in the world at that time. And they say that the, no way that the land could have supported them. They say that either this is a complete myth or that these numbers are wildly overinflative. Now, I actually think that this skepticism is very instructive to us. They understand one thing. They understand the magnitude of the people that's being reported here. And, and they say, no, that's too incredible it, it can't be conceived, therefore it must be false. Salvation can't be that great. How many of us think like that today? That brings us to our third principle. The multitude of human plunder or souls that Christ gathers for eternity will be immeasurable. The multitude of human plunder or souls that Christ gathers for eternity will be immeasurable. We, we talked about in the beginning how this is history and typology. What does this magnitude typify? What does it teach us? It teaches us the incalculable number of souls that will be saved before Jesus returns. Fight that inner skeptic. 
Well, what does the New Testament say? John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, uh, this isn't merely a statement about Jesus saving both Jew and Gentile. It is that. Nor does this verse endorse universalism, that all we saved. That's not true. But it is a statement about the massive scope of salvation. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says on this point. How much grandeur is there in the thought of the multitudes Christ redeems with his blood? Christ did not die to save a few. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be abundantly satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Isaiah 53, 11. A multitude which no man can number shall stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9. Let us remember that God has promised to Abraham as the sand upon the seashore, even so shall thy seed be. Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the fourth part of Israel? Genesis twenty-two seventeen. O mighty God, how great is that deliverance which bringeth out a host of thine elect, more countless than the stars and as innumerable as the sands upon a thousand shores, all Hail to thy power that doeth all this. End quote. Now, someone might say at this point, but what about those scriptures that say only a few will enter the narrow gate that leads to life, Matthew 7, 14? Or that scripture that says many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22, 14. What do we do with those? Well, this is what we do with them. We say those are absolutely true. And we need to go back and read those places in the context of the whole book. Who is Jesus speaking to in those places? Who is Jesus, what generation is Jesus condemning in those places? He's condemning that generation of vipers that crucified the Lord. Only a few of those in that generation will be saved. But that is not a a measurement of all of redemptive history. We just read a whole bunch of verses that talk about the Spurgeon did. We can't throw all those out in order to try to make those fit. We have to make them fit together. Incredible deliverance at the Exodus is a type of what Jesus is going to accomplish in history. Let's look at verse 40 together. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.17 that this 430 years began when the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 15, and then it ended at the Exodus. So it wasn't that they were in the land for 430 years. It was between the promise to Abraham and the deliverance in the Exodus in Exodus 12. If that's confusing to you, just... Um, talk to me afterwards, but don't miss that uh, the point here is the exactness of God's deliverance. Look at verse 41. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, on that very day, comfort yourself with this truth. First, God did not allow his people to stay in Egypt one second longer than what he had promised. At, the, at precisely the predestined moment, they were set free. 
Dear congregation, God's timing in our lives is according to the most wise plan. God saved you at exactly the right moment. And for those of you who are in a severe trial right now, for those of you who feel like you're back in Egypt, you know you're a believer, but you're back under the bondage of some oppression, take heart. God will not allow you to be in this trial one second longer than what is for your good and for what is for, what is for his glory. He, has a, he had a perfect plan for Israel and he has a perfect plan for your life. But the second comfort we see here is after these words in The same verse we read, at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. All of them. Not a child got left behind, not a hoof got left behind, not a backslider got left behind, not a beggar got left behind, not a sinner got left behind. All of God's people were rescued. Your congregation, this is what Jesus promised, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. In fact, look at the last verse in our passage. Verse 42 says, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The Lord was keeping a watch. He was keeping a vigil to make sure that all of his people were rescued. Loved ones, If you've lived long enough as a Christian, you know there are times when you lose your way. You know there are times when you backslide and you fall into sin and you're unfaithful. Their leaving the Exodus did not depend upon their own merit. It was the Lord who brought them out. It was the Lord who watched over them. And the Lord will finish the work that he began in you. I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will see it completed until the day of Christ Jesus. He will keep his covenant promise to all who put their hope in him. So then what's the takeaway? What does our passage tell us to do? Christian, you have left Egypt with great plunder. Do you know how to gain strength for the journey that's ahead of you? Christian life is also often compared to walking through the the wilderness into the promised land. Do you know how to gain strength for that walk? It's in the gold and the silver and in the clothing. It's in all of those spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. Loved ones, search them out. I, I only mentioned four. Keep a plunder journal of all the things that Christ has done for you and what he promises to do for you. Imputed righteousness, peace with God, a pure conscience, fullness of joy, a future resurrection, sanctification, glorification, eternal life with God himself, and a million other incalculable treasures. Study your plunder. And that gospel plunder will give you strength for your journey all the way to the promised land. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this history that we read and the typology that it presents to us. That the first Exodus has nothing on the second Exodus, that the true and better Moses, the true and better Passover lamb, has done far more exceedingly above all that we can think or ask or even imagine. Lord, we thank you that we were plundered out of Egypt. And we thank you that you have given us inestimable plunder. Help us to spend it, Lord. Help us to use it, Lord. That we might gain strength for our walk through the wilderness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.